episode of the political state podcast from the Oklahoma. I'm Ben Felder today as today we're recording this episode on Wednesday, May 11th. We've been off for a couple of weeks and joining me as always is my colleague Carmen Foreman who could probably use a couple more weeks off because it's been a pretty busy uh, time at the Capitol especially as we hit the home stretch of legislative session but you're gonna have to wait a little bit longer a couple more weeks until the session is over and then um, it sounds like maybe you are gonna get some downtime um, but we're not there quite yet so Carmen we're, we're, we're right in the thick of it this is kind of the uh, the last the, the home stretch if you if you will coming off the Kentucky Derby we kind of talked about this as the as the home stretch and maybe there's a policy issue that seemed like a long shot um, like what was a rich strike I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't I didn't anticipate making a, a, a Kentucky Derby analogy, but here we are. And so maybe there's a policy issue that's gonna come up from behind. Um, and when it's all, we'll get it, we'll, we'll talk about some of those uh, leading forces. But anyways, Carmen, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. A little tired, uh, in need of vacation time, but like you said, hopefully coming soon. <laughs> it's, it is coming, it's coming. Um, we're in May, we're in the final months of legislative session. Um, you know, everyone's, you know, cranky at the Capitol and ready for this thing to end. And, um, but we still, like the, the biggest issue is still yet to be really decided or even like given the line of day, which is which is the state budget. Um, and Carmen, I, I wanted to talk about the budget because that's really kind of, I mean, we're, we'll get into some of the policy issues that, we're, that are still left to be decided and, and what we might expect to see. But um, every year, the, you know, the, the biggest thing arguably that the legislature does is they put together the fiscal year budget for the next fiscal year. Um, and every year it's about this time that we start to see the details of it and unveiled. It sounds like we're maybe going to see that next week. Um, and then the then lawmakers have, you know, literally just a matter of days, not weeks to, you know, kind of approve this thing. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, my money's on maybe Monday, we'll see a budget Monday. And then um, that it just, once the budget is unveiled or once lawmakers and the governor reach a budget agreement, usually how it goes is it's just pushed through the legislature um, pretty dang quickly. So within the span of a week. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know how much that's intentional. Uh, so people can't see, you know, all the details of the budget. Uh, part of it is just because we literally have basically two weeks and a couple days left in session. So they have to get it done by the last Friday in May. Yeah. I mean, let, let's talk about that a little bit, you know, this kind of intentionality or not of, of passing through a budget like this. Um, Oklahoma gets knocks from a variety of organizations, both locally and nationally for having, um, you know, one of the least transparent budget processes in the country. Um, and I'm not an expert on what every state does, but I have researched this. I wrote a story earlier this year kind of about that concept that Oklahoma, you know, is kind of seen as having this, this lack of transparency in the budget process. And of course, the budget leaders hated the story and complained to me every chance they could get. And like, we have a transparent budget process. We start the process at the beginning of the session, before session even begins, with these budget hearings, which is true, but the budget hearings are state agencies asking for what they want. It's not transparent about how lawmakers are discussing what happens. Um, but to be fair, I don't know how much of that you can have in public, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, legislative leaders have to kind of decide on something that they think A is going to have the votes, um, you know, and, and B something that the governor is going to approve. And I, I mean, as much as I would love for those budget negotiation meetings between le legislative leaders and the governors to be open to the public and open to the press, it's just, I don't know. I mean, these are negotiations. You want to have some some freedom to kind of discuss concepts and, and not get immediate 
blowback in the public. But the reality is we don't see a final product until until we have a final product almost. Yeah, and I mean, I think on that note, I, I also would love if budget negotiations were public. None of the states I've worked in and covered state capitals in have, have done it that way. It's just not typically the way it's done. And that was, you know, Virginia and Arizona. Arizona's sort of a purple state. Virginia was was a red state when I was there and then sort of a blue state and now back to more of a red state. So it, it you know, it runs the gamut. But, um, you know, could you imagine if those budget hearings were public or the budget negotiations were public and every single lobbyist in the building sat in and when their, when their specific thing didn't get funded or that, you know, then they're going to go hound lawmakers and say, well, you got to fund my project. You got to fund my project for my group that pays me, you know, and we'd never, I mean, we'd never have a final budget, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, I, and I think some other states, some things that other states do is they might kind of piecemeal a little bit. So you're kind of you know, taking in chunks instead of this kind of what essentially becomes kind of a, you know, take it or leave it kind of thing. Um, and of course, the legislative leaders have the power in negotiating these budgets, but I mean, it still comes down to a vote of their members. And so they have to, you know, make sure it's something their caucus will approve. But this late in the game, and also, you know, I always kind of think about it, like if you're on a road trip, I might start the day with some grand ideas of where I want to eat. But by the end of the day, I'll take whatever's there, you know, and, and that's kind of, I feel like, where the lawmakers are with the budget. I mean, how much do you really want to argue every point when, you're looking to get out of town um, after you know several months of session. Yeah, that's a good point. Continuing with your analogy, you might be driving through Kansas City and you're like, I'm gonna stop for some really good barbecue. And then you get there and you see there's a two hour wait and you're like, ah, I'm just gonna drive to McDonald's around the corner. So yeah, I would hope I would never pass up a two hour line <laughs> as to go to McDonald's, but I'm thinking more of like a family road trip where the food becomes an argument at the end and my wife and I just whatever, just just take whatever, like whatever the next place is, we'll, we'll take. We're in the middle of Utah and we'll just take it. Um, and so it's kind of how sometimes I think the budget process goes. So um, it's not transparent, but I don't know how. I mean, but I think there's some reasons for that, obviously. I mean, I, I'm not defending lawmakers at all on this, but um, I mean, the reality is it's just not transparent. I just and I just found it humorous that the that the, 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 the argument was made. Well, like, see, we have these budget hearings, but these are state agencies making the request. It's not lawmakers discussing it. So I'm kind of curious. Well, it sounds like you expect this early next week the budget to drop. What, what are you looking for? What are you most interested? Like, what are the first things you're going to be looking at, and, and what have, what have you kind of heard about maybe to expect in this budget? I think first thing I'd be looking for is tax cuts or tax relief of some sort. Um, there was a lot of talk all throughout session. Um, There's bipartisan talk about uh, eliminating the state's grocery tax or um, from the House was kind of throwing their weight behind a proposal to suspend the grocery tax for a couple of years. There's also talk of, you know, doing individual income tax cuts or providing direct checks to Oklahoman while inflation is high. Um, and, you know, I've seen polling that inflation really does worry a lot of families, you know, just more national polling, not Oklahoma specific, but it's going to be a talking point throughout the rest of the year going into election season. So I would start with tax cuts or tax relief. And then I think education is always a huge uh -huh. talking point when it comes to the budget. Um, Governor Stitt had a lot of talk in his State of the State speech about wanting to pay um, high-performing teachers six figures, um, and there was some legislation that would sort of do that. It was never totally clear how many teachers could qualify for that money, so that's, I think, something people are going to be looking for in addition to, you know, finding ways to... Um, 
combat the nursing shortage, the teacher shortage, um, general workforce shortages? Is there going to be more money for higher ed to uh, recruit uh, and train um, in those specific specialties, whether it's engineering, nursing, teaching, those sorts of things? Um, that's part of what I'm curious about. I'll also be curious to see. Um, I've heard talk that they're going to uh, do a big chunk of money to uh, essentially try to eliminate the DHS developmental disability services waiting list, which they've talked about doing for a couple of years now. And then, I mean, there's so many things to find in the budget. One of the last things I'll mention is the Panasonic deal, or mm -hmm. I, maybe I should say Project Ocean deal that is very likely for Panasonic, um, should they choose to come to Oklahoma. Um, if so lawmakers created a fund of basically $698 million with legislation they already passed, but they haven't funded it yet. They haven't taken the money and put it in the fund. And so the question becomes, what if you take that $698 million, you put it in the fund, and then Panasonic doesn't come here. And then that money is essentially sitting in that fund for an entire year. And then it's also just like a question of, well, can you set aside that money in, in the event that, you know, this major company wants to come to Oklahoma, but can you also do tax cuts if you allocate this money elsewhere? Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, no, definitely a good roundup. I think, I mean, as you said, like education is always one that, that people look towards. I think, especially after the last couple of years, um, you know, talking about those budget hearings um, from state agencies, you know, one of the, one issues that the Department of Ed really highlighted, which is kind of the, you know, the learning loss of a couple of years of, of schooling during a pandemic, especially, uh, you know, there were some schools that were pretty much in session the entire time, but the schools that weren't or had the most virtual learning were the, were the schools that had maybe the highest number of kids that kind of maybe needed that that one on one. You know, we're talking about like kind of your your, your low income or, or urban school systems. Um, and so I don't know, it'll be interesting to see what kind of resources, if any, they put behind, you know, helping, you know, the Department of Ed funnel, you know, more attention to schools. Um, it sounds like there's going to be some kind of teacher pay, whether that's kind of bonuses for new teachers and stuff. I mean, you know, you talk about the workforce issue, and that's that was a consistent message from every state agency during those budget hearings. I mean, every every opening in, in state government is, I mean, is nearly impossible to to, to fill. I mean, there's constantly openings, there's constant turnover, and there's probably thankless work in a lot of you know a lot of areas but two it's also there's low pay especially compared to the private sector um and you know people that i talk to who are really mindful of this issue say you know the state really needs kind of a systematic approach to address this i mean you know whether that's across the board pay raises which many of them say is needed you know but you're kind of rethinking how we go about you know hiring employees and it doesn't sound like we're going to kind of see that systematic response we may just see kind of you know a few areas cherry picked in terms of you know where they're going to put some funding but um it's also just been, been the reality even for like a decade plus in Oklahoma. I mean, just the idea of a shortage of teachers, a shortage of troopers, a shortage of, you know, public defenders is just that's just how it is in Oklahoma. And, it's, and it seems like politically we've we've kind of just come to learn to live with it. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I think the state agencies have just learned to make do with less. Mm -hmm. And if you remember back um, around the state of the state time, I mean, Governor Stitt, he wanted a flat budget. And so that doesn't indicate, you know, that many or any state agencies are going to be seeing huge increases 
Um, I, I know you had sort of written about, or maybe I had written about, we've both written about targeted sort of pay increases for certain classes of employees, mm-hmm. whether it's highway patrol troopers, maybe corrections officers. But there, I mean, I would not hold my breath for across the board pay raises for state employees or across the board pay raises for teachers. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the governor. Is there anything this year that you feel like could cause some friction between the governor and the legislature on the budget? Some years we've seen that. It seems like they've played nicer in recent years. But uh. it's, a, it's a good question, because um, two years ago, we were at this point in time and the governor vetoed the major parts of the budget. And then last year he came back and he basically was like, OK, I, I get it now. I get that the legislature writes the budget and I just come at the end and I get to act on it. And so he kind of. And you know Governor Stitt, he's not he's not one to take a hands-off approach. So I think it took him a while to come around to that's just sort of how the budget has always been done, uh, that the legislature writes it, they decide what goes in it, what gets funded after the governor lays out what his priorities are. So it'll be interesting to see if Governor Stitt keeps with that um, sort of vibe from last year that he, he is that he is a happy-go-lucky, go along with this process, or if he's going to kind of revert back to the way he usually is on things, which he likes to take hold, take charge, and uh, you know, be in the room as they're crafting the budget. Um, as for his priorities, I mean, he he himself was one who is pushing for elimination of the grocery sales tax. So I think there's that's a great indication that if, if it's not that sort of tax cut, there will be some sort of tax mm-hmm. cut going into the budget. Um, but I, I do think that there is a feeling that is an election year for a lot of lawmakers and for Governor Stitt. They want to come out of this, I think, together, all on the same page, not fighting with each other, um, but come out victorious and have a budget that they can talk to constituents on the campaign trail. Yeah. Well, uh, obviously we'll be watching next week and we know you'll be covering, you know, any budget details that come out. You know, another thing we'll be watching for, I mean, there's still a flurry of bills to go through, um, but uh, uh, ballot initiatives, I mean, it's usually the time of the year where we see if the legislature is going to send any issues to um, to voters this year. Um, is, there, is there any in particular you're watching or, or, or feel like you might see? Yeah, I was watching a lot of the ones that would change the initiative petition process, but they didn't, you know, they didn't advance to the point that they would have had to at this point in time to make it on the ballot. Um, one that I think will be really interesting to watch is um, a Senate joint resolution from Pro Tem Treat that um, could ask, it would ask voters to basically enshrine in the state's constitution that there is no right to an abortion. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, um, but you know, with the U.S. Supreme Court looking like they're poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, a lot of these reproductive rights groups and abortion providers um, who have sued over anti-abortion laws in the past, they basically have said that, okay, now we're going to be looking in state constitutions to try and find protections for abortion. And when we challenge anti-abortion laws, that's what we're going to be relying on. And so pro tem treats Senate joint resolution, which seems like it has a good chance of going to the ballot, um, would essentially say, hey, there's no right to this. And it could it could sort of proactively shut down a lot of legal avenues for folks to challenge, say, whether it's Oklahoma's trigger law or Oklahoma's new six week abortion ban. 
Yeah, yeah. And so that would be that would that would put the issue up for about this year to voters. Yeah, be, uh, any any ballot initiatives or I should say legislative referendums um, would go on the ballot in November. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, you mentioned abortion. Obviously, that's been kind of the big a political topic in the last you know couple of weeks. Um, and I know you had a chance to go on um, one of the Oklahoman's uh, other podcast, The Source, and talk about this issue in, in detail and kind of the ins and outs of what we're kind of expecting. And you've written a lot this year about kind of um, the anti-abortion bills that have been passed. Um, I, but I do want to ask you about kind of what do you feel like is going to be, I mean, everyone's kind of like, what is the political impact? Of that? And I think on a national level, this idea that Roe's about to be overturned, you will say, what does it mean for the midterm elections? Does it reinvigorate Democrats? You know, what is, you know, what does it do? There are definitely some purple states out there where it's like, okay, now abortion's going to probably be one of the defining issues, especially if you've got a competitive gubernatorial race, you know. Um, but I wanted to pose this question to you and discuss this for a little bit. Um, what do you feel like are the political implications in Oklahoma? And the the answer could be nothing, right? I mean, and and such a red state like Oklahoma, um, I I don't know that there's going to. I mean, there's definitely not any primary races where you're going to see candidates really disagree. I mean, they're all going to you know the Republican primary. It's going to be you know a you know, strong anti-abortion stance. Um, and then come the general, I mean, the governor's race, uh, you know, we assume it's going to be between Hoffmeister and Sitt. Now, she's kind of put out a statement, not forcefully, but essentially saying that she feels like the issue should be decided between a doctor and, and a mother and or a, a woman, and which it kind of insinuates that she thinks we should get out of legislative abortion. But I, I imagine, she, so I don't know, it's not definitive on where she would stand, but um, these bills will have been passed already. You know, they'll already be enacted. So even if she were to win, you know, there's nothing for her to veto or overturn. So I don't even know if abortion becomes a big issue in November. I, I'm just kind of curious how you think this kind of, if, if at all, looks, kind of impacts the political landscape here in Oklahoma. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, it's looking, you know, four or five steps ahead. I, I do think that there will be some impact. I think that, among, you know, I think the big challenge every election cycle, especially for Democrats, is getting young people out to vote, especially in, um, you know, a a very red, very conservative state. And, you know, I'm not saying there aren't red and conservative uh, young Oklahomans, but what we know is that traditionally young people tend to be more liberal, more democratic, that sort of thing. And so I do think that this issue, the abortion issue, will spur more young people to go to the polls. I don't know how much though. And um, especially if something like pro tem treat Senate joint resolution makes it on the ballot, I think we'll see conservatives coming out in droves to vote in favor of it. And then we might see um, this young, younger female sort of voting block that is potentially coming out to vote against it. Now, what that does up and down the ballot, it's hard to say because, you know, again, um, assuming, let's say, our our general election for the governor's race is Governor Kevin Stitt versus Joy Hoffmeister. Well, you know, Hoffmeister said she's she's pro-life. So while she said, you know, she thinks the issue should be decided between a woman and a doctor, and she indicated that some of the bills the governor had signed maybe go too far, um, she's also pro-life. So she's She's kind of also indicating that, you know, she might sign future anti-abortion bills um, down the line. But like you said, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, I think this is this is totally, you know, 
I have nothing to base this on, but I do think this could create a renewed um, fervor over um, electing court justices uh, to the Supreme Court, the Oklahoma Supreme Court. I think it could affect maybe judicial races uh, down the ballot. I also think there could be a question of whether this affects uh, district attorneys races, right? Because you see in some cities where uh, let's take Texas, for example, um, where uh, in more liberal cities, let's say DAs in those cities say they will not enforce anti-abortion laws. They basically will not charge women or um, abortion providers that break the laws of the books. So I do wonder, could that be an issue in, say, the Oklahoma County District Attorney's race? You know, so that's, yeah, that's a great, my two yeah, no, no, that's a great point. And I think um, uh Given this new landscape of of a possible post war world, and also some of the new bills, the laws that are being enacted here in Oklahoma, I think it I think it also gives some some detail to this debate that we don't always have. And so, what I mean by that is like, so I've been covering the attorney general's primary race, um, you know, Drummond and O'Connor, and I've asked them about you know abortion, and they're and I think. And I and I haven't really been satisfied in the answers because and I think it's because they're so used to being like, well, I'm extremely pro-life, you know, using that language. And um, so what's there to talk about? Like, I, I'm against abortion. But with these new laws, I think there are some specific questions to pose to the AG's office. And and that is like, how forceful would you be and and, uh, uh, you know, prosecuting potential violations of these laws? And, and you say like. If the DA is not going to take up a case, say in Oklahoma County, that might be taken up in a more conservative county. Like, how aggressive is the AG's office going to go after after a case? And of course, they're not necessarily investigating, um, you know, violators. But I'm I'm sure there's going to some of these issues could raise their attention. I mean, we know these laws are going to pretty much in work at the clinics. But what does it mean when it comes to like you know medication induced abortions? Um, what does it look like when I mean? medical procedure i still think there's some gray area in that with medical procedures i mean you talk you know in hospitals to say like some of these are just they're not abortion we don't call them abortions or medical procedures even though you may interpret them that way i just so when that news gets out to the hospital maybe you've done something or you know an organization helps women travel out of state for an abortion i mean how how aggressive is the ag's office going to be in going after some of these cases and i asked i posed that question to both attorney general john o'connor and then uh Ginter drummond who's challenging him and I kind of asked him some specifics of these hypotheticals and the answer was still just like, well, I'm, I'm extremely pro-life, you know? And I mean, O'Connor did say like, you know, if the, if the DA is not going to do his job, I'll, I'll go after him. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that's, and I don't know how much more it, a debate it'll become, you know, maybe if these two could get on a debate stage and ask these specific questions, they'd be kind of more forced. But I think it's a relevant question to ask, you know, of the of the AG's office. Um, and, but I, but I don't know how much voters are kind of, you know, aware of that right now. It is easy for, I, I think another thing, it's an interesting in a state like Oklahoma and then the opposite would be true in a very democratic state, like, you know, maybe like Texas or, or not Texas, California or, or somewhere else. But, um, you know, it's easy to run when you can have offered definitive answer, you know, and if you're, and it may not be always the right way to be policy-wise because like the world's not always black and white. But um, the governor is from day one. I will sign any anti-abortion legislation across the nation. That's clear. That's concise. You know where he stands. Um, Hoffmeister's take is that like, well, it's a tricky area. You know, I am pro-life. I also think these decisions should be made, you know, in the privacy of a doctor's office. Um, she's not giving a clear answer, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
I think it's easier, once easier for sound bites to have clear answers. And sometimes it's easier to uh, drum up excitement in your bass when you have clear answers like that, right? And so um, I would imagine that Stitt will talk about this on the campaign trail, you know, almost trying to push Hoffmeister to like, I'm giving a clear answer. Where's your clear answer? I'm where, I'm where you stand on that. Once again, that may not be the best way to legislate because this is a, you know, if there is any black or is there any gray issue in the world, it's abortion, you know? And, yeah. and even if you're against abortion, you, unless you are against abortion in every sense, like in every situation, then you admit that there's a grave. So anyways, um, but I just, so I, I think, you know, I, I think we'll see that issue, but once, it, but once the general election comes around, this issue in Oklahoma will be not settled. I'm sure there'll be lawsuits and challenges, stuff like that. But in terms of laws that can be passed, it's hard to imagine how more strict they could get, right? Yeah, and it is interesting. I do think, you know, if if the U.S. Supreme Court does overturn Roe, I think that sort of gives um, Superintendent Hoffmeister maybe some cover on the campaign trail to not have to really explain her position more so because she can just say, well, the U.S. Supreme Court, they overturned it. We have a trigger law in place. Now it's in, in effect. Um, I, I don't know what else you want me to do, you know? So. Although the question can be posed, like what kind of justices would you appoint to the Supreme Court, right? I mean, that's... Yes, um, good question. I mean, that's that's where it could come down. And, um, you know, when it's now Republican-leaning Supreme Court in terms of their the nomination, you know, in terms of the governor that, that appointed them. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I also think that this idea that the issue is about to just be settled I don't know that that's true. And I I mean, I think if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, I think they're going to continue to see abortion cases come back to them. I mean, I just don't think it's going to settle yes. things. In fact, it may make the situation more murky. And even in a state like Oklahoma, where it seems like we've settled this issue, I just, I'm still curious about what the future looks like on tribal land, you know, in this post-McGirt world. How does that, you know, we can have a whole other discussion about that. Um, you know, I, like I said, I, Lisa, go ahead. Yeah, I just think that there's, you know, however the Supreme Court decides, I think there are a million questions that are like, okay, what happens next on, okay, let's say our trigger law does take effect and we mostly ban abortion in Oklahoma. Well, then what's next? I mean, lawmakers have run anti-abortion bills for decades in Oklahoma and they're not just, I, I find it hard to believe that they're just going to stop on this issue. So then do they try to um, more strictly regulate contraception and what kind of, um, you know, contraception women get, whether it's plan B or the morning after pill, or whether it's, you know, your regular everyday average birth control pill, or do they start to try to, you know, stop women from traveling across state lines to get an abortion, which I'm pretty sure would be like, unconstitutional in a, a variety of different ways but that doesn't mean they won't try they won't try it yeah this doesn't mean they won't they won't make that attempt and i yeah so i just i just think that this is this idea that this issue is about to be settled is um i, I think it could become even even more complicated and i you know and a lot of people who are pro uh, abortion rights will point to the fact that numerous polls show that nationally and even in oklahoma the majority of people favors some type of legalized abortion in some way and granted you know everybody has their kind of their, their where their line is differently but um the that doesn't do you that doesn't mean anything when a, a lot of our races are decided in republican primaries mm -hmm. i mean yes the majority of oklahomans whether it's whatever poll you're looking at 58 percent or whatever you know may say that we that we believe there should be some kind of form of legalized abortion um 
I don't think it's 58% amongst the Republican primary voters. I mean, it's probably very low. And so um, that's the other thing that you get into when a lot of these races are decided in the Republican primary. I mean, almost every statewide race is going to be decided by the Republican primary, some because there's not even a Democratic candidate. Um, and then we'll see, maybe the governor's race becomes more competitive at this point. Obviously, it seems like it's stits for it. It's stits to lose. Um, but there's a lot of legislative races, too, that are kind of decided at the primary level. And so, um, yeah, there may be more diverse thought on this issue than people think, but not necessarily in a in a primary. And so, um, you know, it's kind of why we get to the why we get to where we are in terms of how some of these laws may seem pretty extreme. But once again, it's, it's just the opposite. Maybe you've been your most Democratic states. Right. Um, Anyways, well, like I said, I think there'll be plenty more to write. So have fun. I think you'll, <laughs> if you don't think, I don't, you know, hopefully you don't think you're done writing about abortion yet, because I don't, I don't think that you are from a political and a policy, policy perspective. That seems like a safe bet. So, yeah. Um, well, hey, uh, we're, like I said, we're at the home stretch, but we've, there's still a lot of work to do, a lot of coverage for you. Um, so um, hopefully you get some rest this weekend and are ready to get at it. But um, thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find all other episodes if you're podcasting app. Also find some episodes in the Oklahoman's YouTube channel with Carmen Foreman. I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week for another episode of Political State.